when I was young, um, I wanted to be an astronomer. And then I realized that most of what astronomers do is math. And I said, forget it. Uh, so I want really cool, and I hope you do too. Um, this is a picture that was taken in 1995 by the Hubble Space Telescope. I remember seeing this. This is what got me interested in outer space. I remember seeing this in a Sky and Telescope magazine, if you know anything about astronomy. That was a, a big magazine. It still is. And this is 6,500 light years away. And what they think is happening here is the birth of stars. Like that is a picture of stars being born. Here's another spire from that same nebula. This, um, I always get the name wrong. This is a picture of Messer 94. It's a spiral galaxy. This is, just double check here, yeah, 15 million light years away from us. An entire other galaxy. Think about that. Think about how this is, that until like somewhere around the 90s, I can't remember what what year this was taken, the only being that saw this was God. Like he, and we just like, we're catching it through these massive things they kicked off into space. It's incredible. How big and vast. This creeps me out. <laughs> I remember this one, uh, again, from Sky and Telescope Magazine, which I used to read avidly. I feel like this is like God's eye, like looking at me. That's um, not what this is. It's called the Hourglass Nebula. Uh, they think it's the birth of a, of, a, of a small solar system that will begin to expand um, over time. But, you know, obviously that's some conjecture. But God's watching you. Yes. <laughs> this is beautiful, isn't it? This, we moved to here. We didn't have a lot of light pollution in the hills of Tennessee, and they didn't have a lot of light pollution where I grew up either. And so sometimes you could actually see the Milky Way. Has anybody ever seen it? Can I come across the night sky? It's beautiful. This is the Milky Way, and this is the Andromeda Galaxy. And they're crossing. In fact, what, what they can tell based upon like kind of how light shifts and, and how they can measure these things, redshift, things like that, is that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is actually going to collide with the Andromeda Galaxy. We're actually on a collision course with death. <laughs> My daughter goes, uh. <laughs> It's okay, baby. It's four billion years away. So, yeah, about four billion years. So you're all okay. Don't, don't fret. Don't sell everything. Well, I mean, you can if you want to, but. When I, I think what draws my attention to this is uh, not just that I want to be an extra in a Star Trek episode, but that maybe some of you look at the trees, maybe some of you look at the ocean. But when I look at the night sky, I feel both small um, but also, I sense all of this beauty, and I just want to be swallowed up in it. I sense the glory of God. I sense the majesty of creation. And I think to myself, of all of those things that I showed you, that no one has, like God made that just because he creates. And I don't know what you think about God. We have some guests here today. I don't know what you think about God. Maybe you're wrestling with your faith. Maybe you're not so sure you even believe in God. But when you see something like that or whatever it is that draws your mind to majesty, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to say, 
wow, glory to something. Like maybe people say mother nature or glory to evolution. Or, but those are all same time that I sense. And you know, this is what's interesting about humanity because we are the creatures on the planet who build telescopes and shoot them into space so that we can see more of God's glory. Like, we're the people who stand there in awe of those things. No one else does. My dog doesn't do that. She's with me because she's hoping I will drop something for her to nibble. No animals do that. But here we are marveling at what it is. But then it gets bigger than that. Because we're not just interested in beauty, are we? It doesn't matter, again, who you are, where you're from. As long as, No. Um, it doesn't matter what you think about God. Because when you stand there... In the vastness of that beauty, you will begin to ask questions that are even bigger. Because you begin to ask, well, what am I here for? What does this mean to me? You begin to reflect on your own existence and who you are. And the, the, the ancient philosophy said that humans were built for transcendence. Like we, were the, we are the people who have, in some way, somewhere, the very core of our being, we are constantly on the search for and have the hunger for more. And not just more food, but, but more knowledge, more wonder, more insight, more questions. That more is built into our hunger, and I would argue, the existence of God. And the fact that he has placed that kernel, that search, that hunger for more in you, that you stop and say, that's beautiful. I wonder what it means, and I wonder how I fit into it, tells me that you were made for that more. It tells me that you were made for that more. And scripture, scripture lays out this beautiful story that says, something ripe with beauty. And something we all desire, we want to be a part of that beauty. And then it says that beauty is not indifferent to you, but rather all of this transcendence that you hunger for has a name. And that name came to rescue you from the bile and vile bases of our nature and to transcend you to something greater. And that name is Jesus. That name is Jesus. And that is what scripture is after. That's what the book of Hebrews is after. And that's what we've been trying to communicate, uh, trying to share with, with all of you over the past several weeks. As I said, the ancient uh, theologians and Christian theologians, and, and even non-Christian theologians, they would call uh, these transcendentals, the things that are transcendent. They said that humans are made in hunger of the good and the true. And isn't that true? <laughs> We want goodness out of everyone around us, even if we're not very good. Don't you? Yes? <laughs> that's why we use the words, I'm not, that's not fair. We want the beautiful. We surround ourselves with beauty, pictures, images, songs, art. Art is a gift by God. All of these things. All of this is built into us, and all of this is uh, built into our text today, which is Hebrews chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one in the pew, the first time I've ever said that, and it's accurate. The pew in front of you, it's the same version I'm using, so if you grab that and turn to page 1005 and look for the big number 8, you will be with me. This verse, I think, points to these things. And so we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit today. 
And inside of this verse, there's, there's, there's two locations and one reason, and they all kind of relate to Jesus. He is the kind of give two descriptions of his location currently and the reason for that location. So Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we, have, what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So here we have, first of all, a location. We are told where Jesus is. He is at the right hand of majesty. Now, this is an important point that we need to, I need to really draw your attention to. Um, because as Christians, and maybe if you're not a Christian here today, or, or maybe you uh, grew up in a different tradition, our tradition anyway, and what I see out of most Protestants is all the songs, Jesus died for my sins, died for my sins, died for my sins. Then in a somewhat distant second, but not forgotten, is resurrection. We at least talk about it once a year on, on Resurrection Sunday Sometimes I've sat through sermons where I was like, are you going to get to resurrection? Like, that's the good news, guys. Death isn't the good news. He's alive. That's the good news. But the good news is further than that, and it's more than that, and we often forget that. In fact, down the list, a ways, we get to ascension. Way down the list, we get to ascension. Death, so important. Resurrection, pretty important. Ascension, uh, yeah. Now, I can get into the history of that and the overemphasis of penal substitutionary atonement by the Reformation, but I won't bore you. I'll simply point out that the Bible does not have the same hang-ups. In fact, the Bible is constantly telling us where Jesus is and emphasizing death, resurrection, ascension, and return. You can't pull any of those out and still have the story. It doesn't work. Any of those missing and everything, everything collapses and the ascension is just as important. And here are some verses that point this out. It tells us that Jesus has ascended to the far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Remember that Messer 94, that spiral galaxy. What it means to say Jesus is filling all creation. That's something you could ponder for a day or two. It says in Colossians 3, verse 1, that we through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, have been raised with Jesus so that we are to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And by God, do we need to hear that this week while everyone was going nuts. Maybe you belong to an anarchist, communist, commune. Fine, I don't care. But we as Christians are called to be seated above those things, not obsessed with those things, not fretting over those things. We are to be seeking the things of Christ, the things that are so transcended, the good, the beautiful, the true. Has that been your focus this week? Or have you been caught up in the nightly news? If you're a Christian, you were made for better things than scandals. Setting our eyes on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. First Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Say it again. Having been what? 
I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase subjected to, but that means in charge of, overseeing, has power over. And what things does he list? He lists things that we have not within our view necessarily, I say, but God's own servants, authorities, and powers. So authorities refers to um, things like Supreme Court nominations and presidents and economies and things that, all of those things, they are subjected to Jesus. And the powers, which refers to the, the kind of combination between those spiritual things we don't see and how they affect the authorities that are over us, all of those things are subjected to Jesus. And we are called to seek the things beautiful because it allows us to do something and to have something that I do not see in society as a whole, and that is peace. If you understand that you are transcended above the muck and the mire, And if you understand that the muck and the mire is under the power of Jesus, but that you have been called out of that darkness and into the light of his glory so that you can live a new, transcendent kind of life, what should you fear or worry about? What kind of peace can we have while everyone else is losing their mind? While everyone else is afraid? While everyone else is scared? We are the people who can say, Jesus is controlling the things that we can't. And Jesus is giving us grace to live. Of course, that is a particular kind of life. I love uh, Romans 8.34. It says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And as we've been talking about, interceding for us. If Jesus doesn't ascend, if that story doesn't happen, if that's not a part of your story, when you tell the gospel, when you say this is the word about Jesus, and you don't say he ascended to the right hand of the Father, you have no one to intercede for you. You have no one who has subjected the rulers, the powers, and the authorities. Because that is what it means to say Jesus has died, he rose from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he judges the living and the dead. It is imperative that we understand that, and that by understanding this, we bring it into a experiencing peace that passes all understanding, while suffering might happen in our lives, but the people who also express peace by being people of peace, who neither get caught up in nor participate in anything scandalous. We are to be above reproach, because as soon as you get into reproach zones, your peace goes away. And so the Bible calls us again and again, live holy lives. Why do you live holy lives? Because you've been called above unholy things. You've been called to transcend above that stuff. You're called to the good, to the beautiful, and to the true. I like the ascension of Jesus, if you haven't already noticed. Because I really need someone to say to God, you should forgive him. You should have mercy on him. We need to help him. And that's where Jesus... We have a location, and then we have a reason, and then we have another location. So we just talked about the location. He's at the right hand of majesty. And here we have the reason, 
And the reason is that he can do just what I said, intercede for us. That he can minister for you and for me. And what's beautiful about this, as Jesus enters into the holy place to minister to you, which is a crazy thought, the God who made that spiral galaxy you just saw, that eagle's nest that you saw, where stars are being formed in his sight alone, exists now, standing in this holy place at the right hand of majesty to minister to you. That's a crazy thought. It's a beautiful thought. There's no other thought, no other story in all of human history that comes even close to that thought. That the God who made molecules and numbers the hairs of your head has concern enough to be in the... And that means that if you want to receive his ministrations, it's just a fun word, you also have to minister. You don't get off the hook. There's this beautiful reciprocity, this beautiful transition, this beautiful sharing of work that the God who who transcends all things to rule all things, the God who does all of that so that he might intercede and minister to us, pulls us into the same ministry he's about. Isn't that tremendous? Revelation 1 says that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. That is who you are. If ever you forget, because it's easy to forget with all of the noise and all of the experiences that we have and your busy life, if you ever forget, remember, I'm a priest. If you're a believer here today, greater than his master, if the master was about that kind of business, then so are you. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. But not just because you're super cool and awesome and Jesus loves you so much. I don't want you to leave here thinking that. Well, I do want you to leave here thinking that. But I don't want you to leave here thinking only that. Like part of that rescue is so that you can then turn that around and you can be the one that declares the glory. And that's what priests do, right? They declare the glory of their God. They stand now. God now stands interceding for us and you now stand interceding for the lost that you run into out there. Which means that the peace, the love, the meekness, the humility, the self-sacrifice, the refusal to participate in the muck and mire and sin of the world that Jesus did is now on you. It's now on us. Because all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us that same ministry. When we re- he brings us up into his place so that he can send us out to be agents of his grace. That's a beautiful calling. It's a very tricky calling, isn't it? Very difficult thing to do. The next location we have, so we've been told that Jesus is at the right hand of majesty. We've been told that the reason for that is that he might intercede, that he might minister for us, for his people. And the next location we're told is that he is in the true tent. Now, this, this might need a little setup for those of you who maybe are new to church. A long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, but in your Bibles early on, God came to Moses and said, you need to build me a tabernacle, a tent And that's going to be the place that I live. And it is on that mountain that Moses is given this vision. And what the author of Hebrews and the of the real tent. Given a vision of the real tent. In fact, we have there in verses 3 through 5, if you want to take a look. Says that uh, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what priests do, right? Verse 4. 
Now, if Jesus were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because priests offer gifts according to the law, but Jesus doesn't do that anymore. He offers gifts, gave the gift of himself. Then verse 5, those priests serve a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Moses had a vision of where God dwells. And this is an interesting thought. I will encourage you to ponder this deep thought as you, you know, go to lunch or sit in the car, whatever it is you, you do after services. Um, God, when you think of a king, where does a king dwell? Where does a king, like, hold court? All around them, you know, they've got their guards, and they've got, you know, maybe suits of armor, and they have, they have their right hand, and they're on this dais, and they have courts kind of all spread out before them. God doesn't live in a court like that. God dwells in a temple. Think about that. What is a temple? A temple is not a place where armies dwell, but it's a place of worship, a place of joy, a place where sacrifices are made so that people can be purified and engage in those, trans, those transcendent things, the good and the beautiful and the true. It's so interesting to think about the fact that God dwells in that place. And in fact, that's the vision that we get. Uh, we get this vision in Revelation where, where there is a lion of the tribe of Judah, clearly referencing Jesus. And then the angels tell John to look at the lion. And so John turns and he looks at the lion and he sees what? A lamb that looks like it's been slain, but rather is the one who defeated his enemies by dying for them, whose power is manifested in service and sacrifice and love to others, and calls us then to be that same kind of people by beholding our God, the slain lamb, the one who intercedes for us, who ministers to us, who brings us into his own ministry. Then we see ourselves as those who are called to go forth into the world, Not to conquer our enemies through the sword, but to love our enemies to the point where we laid lives down for them. Because that is beautiful. And that is good. And that is true. And so there are these words that echo out of Revelation chapter uh, 5, verses uh, 9 and 10 which say that uh, you, by your blood, this is speaking of Jesus, ransomed people for God from every kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them cried out, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I remember uh, talking about this, and I probably have more than I... I should, some of you might be bored with it, but I remember talking about my favorite scene in Revelation, one of my favorite scenes in Revelation, uh, and that is this letter that's going forth to the churches, and after each letter, there's kind of like this gift. So if you overcome, you will receive a stone, a new name, these different things. And my favorite gift is, he says, if you, uh, this is, of course, the messenger speaking, the angel speaking from Jesus to the churches. He says, if you conquer, if you overcome the world, if you overcome, I will make you to be a pillar. In the- and I remember saying, this was uh, several years ago, what would you do to be a pillar in the temple of God? And Rob Fedorchek yelled out, anything. And that's him. Some of you, I know him. But I'll never forget that. 
And so I ask the question again, what would you do to be a pillar in the temple of God? Would you make yourself like Jesus? Would you seek the things that are above, setting aside the things that are below? Would you be a person, as Jesus says so famously in that beautiful text, in the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for they will receive the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. All of these things are upside down to everything we experience in life, but they are the real, and the rest is lies. That is the good and the beautiful and the true. That is what you have been called to. That is the invitation of God to the world. That's what Jesus is in flesh. And that is, I would argue, what every single one of us hungers for. Not just to see, but to experience and to be. Don't you want to be beautiful? Don't you want to create beauty all around you? Don't you want people to look at you and say, that's good. That person is good. I can trust them. Don't you want truth in Jesus Christ? And as we behold him, we behold those things. And as we come near him, we begin to participate in those things so that those things that are transcendent, that are above all of the rest, allows us to become holy to God. Allows us to become beautiful. The text that we're talking about wraps up in the last few verses Verses 8 through 13. This is actually a recitation uh, from a prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who lived about 600 years before Jesus. And he foretold a time when God was going to come and make a new kind of covenant with his people. A beautiful kind of covenant with his people. And place inside of them a heart that wasn't of stone but a heart of flesh. A heart that beats. Force the Holy Spirit that enters a believer. Um, through baptism. It says here in the, the last few verses, they're speaking about the covenant. I'll draw your attention um, to verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in the last days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, hey, You need to know the Lord, but they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God declares a time in which, and upon our heart, heart meaning desires, he writes it. And so my prayer has been, um, over the past um, month or two, has been, God, help me to love what you love and help me to hate what you hate. Like, I need my desires. I need the things that I want to be transformed and changed so that I want what God wants. And I move past this punishment-reward mentality. You know, when you've got, like, third graders 
and you want them to read their Bibles, and you say, hey, we'll put another sticker on the chart, guys. And if you get, how I many of you did this? Like Sunday school, anybody know what I'm talking about? And if you got 10 stickers, or everyone got 10 stickers, then you got a pizza party. Huzzah! That's great for children, but we're called beyond that. Because what we want from our children, what I want from my daughters, or I'm hoping to create in my daughters, is not a don't throw that at the dog. When I said don't throw things at the dog, I included everything. I didn't need to make a whole list of all of the different things, which is incidentally what we are doing with the littlest one right now. (laughs) Nothing goes at the dog, right? Just stop. And I don't want her to fear daddy's wrath, and I don't want her to want daddy's blessings. What I want her to want is to love the dog, (laughs) to care about creation, and to recognize that all things that were made by the hand of God have inherent dignity. And what I want for all of that is, is to come from her desire. I want her to stop desiring to throw things at the dog. This might not be the best illustration ever. Those of you with kids are resonating, it's all right. But the point is similar in that I think that God wants us to come above heaven and hell in that sense. Like the reason I'm doing good things is because I know if I don't, God will punish me. And I know if I do, God will give me a blessing. We're made for more than that. We're made to want what God wants because it is good, because he is good, and because we want to be good as well. Heaven and hell work on on the most elementary level, but y'all, you are called for more than that. You are called to to transcend those things. You're called for more. And this covenant that God is describing is one that goes beyond all of the books of the law, which isn't to say these laws are bad. These laws are beautiful. They begin at the very elementary level to, to reveal to us the glory, the goodness, the power, the holiness of God. It begins to teach us how holy and how pure and how Wonderful God is, if you're a new Christian, read Leviticus, please, so that you can see how holy God is and how much you need Jesus. And then recognize that that's not where we stop. It's not about ticking off laws, but about changing everything about who you are so that you, that happens through the power of God by grace and our cooperation with his works. I have more verses, but I think we're done. And that's a tall order. I was, um, I was sitting here uh, just kind of praying and thinking before everybody came in. And I was uh, thinking about the beauty of, of Jesus and his majesty. And this is just a passage from 1 John that spoke to me, and and maybe it will speak to you as well to kind of bring all of this to a conclusion. And That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, Jesus, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify it and we proclaim it to you and that it is eternal life which the Father has made happen in us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. And this is the message, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth is not in us. 
but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we do not walk alone. For we have fellowship with other light bearers, fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. You've been a Christian for a hundred years, or you've never been a Christian at all, isn't that speak to your soul and say, I hope that's true. I want that to be true. In fact, I need that to be true. And I declare to you, it is true. It is beautiful. And it is the only way to goodness. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, I just invite you to ponder that and to ask yourself, how can I draw near to that? And if you say to yourself, I don't know, (laughs) I need help. We'll have elders off to the side here and they want to walk with you. They want to pray with you. They want to point you in the right direction. And as you begin to take those steps of faith and they are jarring, stilting steps of faith, aren't they, church? Haven't we stumbled and fallen most of the way? Keeps on picking us up. Keeps on saying, grow, do better. And the next time you fall, I'll pick you up again. But let's not fall next time. Let's walk in the light. Let's stand as we sit.